Appreciate that. Good morning. This morning, I want to begin with a question, and it's this. What difference does Jesus make? Have you ever put a little too much something into a recipe? I'm sure you have. Maybe a little bit too much salt in the mashed potatoes. Maybe a little bit too much oil in the cake batter. What difference did it make? Did the mashed potatoes, mashed potatoes, cease to become mashed potatoes? Did the cake cease to become a cake? While too much salt or too much oil might affect the taste or the texture of foods, in the end, these don't make much of a difference. Dramatically more important than too much salt or too much oil is Jesus. How much difference does Jesus make? Furthermore, is the question even valid? Can you have a pinch or a pound of Jesus? People sometimes talk about work-life balance. You've heard that, I'm sure. This is usually an attempt to help workaholics make time for their families. Although people don't talk about work-life Jesus balance, I do think our lives sometimes reflect that perspective. What do I mean by work-life Jesus balance? Well, I simply mean we compartmentalize our life. We've talked about that before. We approach work and life and Jesus as individual items that have to be addressed. From 8 to 5, we run to work. From 5 to 10, we run to life. And on Sundays, well, we run to Jesus. Thus, we've achieved a balanced Christian life. How do we know if we've fallen, to, fallen into this kind of thinking? Well, here's an easy test. Are you the same person at work and at home and on Sunday morning? Do you justify certain actions at work that are off limits at home or on Sunday? Are you in a locker room from 8 to 5 and a monastery from 5 to 10? Are you collaborative at work, a dictator at home, and aloof on Sunday morning. What difference does Jesus make? As you know, we're in a study through the Gospel of John. We're transitioning into John chapter 9 this morning. That being said, chapter 1 through 8 says a lot about the difference that Jesus makes in a person's life. You recall chapter 1, verse 12, we read this months ago, but to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, have, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus equates belief in Jesus with a new birth, a new life, and that new life includes the promise of eternal life. John 3.21 adds, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John chapter 4, We drink the water that he offers, he says, will never be thirsty again. He teaches us that to know him is to worship him in spirit and in truth. 
meaning our worship is from the heart and it's in accordance with the truth. In John 5, he says we no longer come under judgment but have passed from death into life. These are stark contrasts. John 6, he says, we'll never ever be hungry and we'll never ever thirst again. John 7 teaches us that rivers of living water will flow out of our hearts. And finally, John 8, verse 12, which we've studied recently, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So, just summary here, what difference does Jesus make? Well, Jesus gives the right to become children of God. He gives us a new birth and a new life. He enables the work of God in us. He satisfies our thirst and our hunger. He empowers authentic worship. He transfers us from the judgment of death to life. He fills our hearts with living water. He gives us the light of life. All this we've seen in eight chapters in the Gospel of John. My point here is not so much to put the stress on the ways in which Jesus makes a difference, although we can see all these different ways. The point here is to stress that he does make a difference. To come into contact with Jesus is not analogous uh, to, to adding or subtracting something from a recipe. It's not the same as that. It's different. To come into contact with Jesus doesn't mean we merely come to a meeting on a Sunday morning or a Tuesday night, or a Wednesday gathering. It doesn't even mean that we clean up our language or we do some community service, although it might result in that. What John wants us to understand is that contact with Jesus involves a radical transformation. So radical, in fact, that it can only be spoken of in this, with the strongest antithesis possible, the strongest contrast possible. The difference between dark and light, night and day, the difference between black and white, that's the kind of contrast that Jesus wants us to understand. And that's the kind of difference that Jesus makes, which is why Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What we're going to see in John chapter 9 is that if, if, if John 8, 12 is a tree, John 9 is kind of in that shadow of that. We're going to see the sign that's going to prove that point. And that's what the healing of the blind man is, which we're going to begin to study this morning. We're going to look at the first 12 verses. And I'm trying to answer that question, what difference does Jesus make in a person's life? The difference between walking in darkness and walking in the light, that's the kind of difference the difference between being blind and being able to see. And so, if you would please stand, we'll read our passage of Scripture this morning. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. As he passed by, this is of course Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This morning in these verses, we're going to see three reflections that help us see the difference Jesus makes in our lives. That's our big idea this morning. Three reflections help us see the difference Jesus makes in our lives. The first reflection is found in verses 1 through 5, and it's this, the purpose of the light, the purpose of the light. We assume that following chapter 8, Jesus and the disciples have left the temple area and they're out of the hands of the religious authorities that were trying to kill Jesus. We only read in verse 1 that they came upon a blind man. We don't really have a, a anything other than that for the setting of this miracle. They came upon the blind man, and this man was blind from birth, and the man's condition drives the, the, the disciples to ask in the second verse, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You probably know the Jewish teaching of the day in Jesus' day was that there was a one-to-one -one relationship between sin and punishment or judgment. As a result, those who were blind or disabled were viewed as being under God's judgment. Their physical experience was a direct result of some sinful action. You remember the book of Job. The book of Job illustrates this. Job's counselors suggested that his suffering came as a result of his sin. He must have done something to deserve this punishment. And so they're trying to get Job to confess that sin and to, to, to figure out what that sin was. And the, the entire book, Job is saying, I didn't do anything. He remains faithful. So that book talks about this reality. Something that book, the book of Job, also teaches us is that there isn't a one-to-one -one relationship between sin and punishment. Although sin may result in punishment or discipline from God, that's not always the case. In fact... God may have permitted suffering for some reason that we're not able to grasp. And the resounding conclusion of the book of Job is that as creatures, we're not always able, nor of course are we entitled, to reveal, for God to reveal to us all the reasons why he might have allowed suffering to come into our lives. The disciples rightly see a conundrum in believing that there is a one-to-one -one relationship between sin and punishment, and that's why they ask this question. If, the, if the, the blind man sinned, well, then his punishment precedes his birth. He was born blind. How's that possible? On the other hand, 
If his parents sinned, why did the worst part of the judgment fall upon him? Seems like a conundrum. Help us understand. So Jesus does in verse 3. He says, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is Jesus' clarifying answer. It is neither that this man sinned nor that his parents sinned, but his suffering was permitted by God. Why? Jesus says that the works of God might be displayed in him. Here we see that the biblical worldview is not a cosmic battle between good and evil, a yin and yang or a imperialism versus republic, whatever the Star Wars thing is. It's not that. But the biblical worldview is the cosmic reign of a sovereign king. A king who has jurisdiction over both good and evil. If evil and suffering exist, and they do, we know that to be true, they exist not on their own terms, but on God's terms. Sin, evil, death, Tragedy, suffering are all subject to a sovereign. And they're subject to him for God's greater glory. Why are our bodies subject to death? So that God may raise them up again. Why did man fall? So that God might save us. Why is evil permitted in this world? So that God might glorify God, so that we might glorify God for him removing it. Which is really about the highest thing you can say about why we're here, why evil exists. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 1, to the praise of his glorious grace. There's nothing higher you can say about why we're here and what God's doing. J.C. Ryle says, God has fought fit to allow evil to exist in order that he may have a platform for showing his mercy, his grace, and his compassion. If man had never fallen, there would have been no opportunity for showing divine mercy, but by permitting evil, mysterious as it seems, and in fact it is, God's work of grace, mercy, and wisdom in saving sinners has been wonderfully manifested to all his creatures. The redeeming of the church of elect sinners is the means of showing to principalities and powers the manifold wisdom of God. Without the fall, we should have known nothing of the cross and of the gospel. These are big truths. Very, very big truths. So why was the man born blind? So that the cure of his blindness would display the work of God, so that God's work would be manifest to the world in this moment that Jesus would heal the blind man. Therefore, the best answer to the question of the origin of evil is to ask another question, what good comes of it? And the best answer, best way to answer the question, who sinned this man or his parents is to ask, what good comes of it? 
which is what we're learning about this morning. Now, speaking of the work of God and what good might come from this man's suffering, Jesus says in verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Apparently, the disciples share in God's responsibility for Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me. Includes the disciples in the work that he is doing. And this participation in the work of God is of an urgent matter. Jesus says they must work, and he mentions that a specific time is allotted. They must work while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. The implication here is that Jesus is on a mission, and there's a particular time allotted for him to complete that mission. The opportunity to do the work of God is terminal and temporal. The sun is falling. Dusk is upon them. We must work now. You remember John chapter 4 when Jesus is with the Samaritans. There's a similar idea there. The Samaritans are coming out. Jesus also speaks of the work that he does in John 4.34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say? There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now's the time. Don't wait until it flowers and the harvest is worth nothing. Reap it now. Same idea here in John 9. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. He says in verse 5, he adds, this really connects this miracle to chapter 8, that chapter 8 verse 12. He says in verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Signaling to us how the healing of the blind man is to be understood. Of course, we don't want to downplay any of the miracles that Jesus does. But this, just, this isn't just another miracle. This is a particular sign for a particular purpose. This is a sign specifically designed to shed light on those who live in darkness. Jesus has been sent into the world by the Father for a short period of time to shine the light of his person out into the darkness and to declare, I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me will not walk in darkness, but will have, will wrap his hands around and grasp the light of life. This is the purpose of the light. Now, how does this reflection, as I've called them, how does this reflection, the purpose of the light, help us to see the difference that Jesus makes in our lives? What does it matter? Well, here's the difference it makes, one idea. We see that we're in the sovereign care of a loving God. We're in the sovereign care of a loving God. Does it make any difference whether or not a child grows up in a home filled with love and support? Yeah, makes a whole lot of difference. Well, likewise, does it make any difference to us in our lives that we see that we're in the sovereign care of a loving God? Absolutely. Furthermore, and more specifically, 
I would argue that the biggest difference it makes in our lives is that we see, we know, we understand that God is in our trouble, which is really what this is all about. God is in the midst of our trouble. For some reason, people want to take God out of our trouble. They want to remove God from our trouble. Well, to remove God from your trouble is a very terrifying thing. Not to mention, it's unbiblical. God is in our trouble. What's most helpful and most comforting is to see God in your trouble. Was God in Joseph's trouble? You remember Joseph? Genesis chapter 50. What does he say? As for you, speaking to his brothers who threw him in a well, he says, you meant it for evil. What you did was evil. He calls evil, evil. That was wrong what they did. But then what does he say of God? God meant it for good. God was in the middle of that trouble. Why? What does he say? To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God saved an entire nation. The only reason why Messiah would come is to believe that God was in the middle of Joseph's trouble. Joseph understood that. He took comfort in it. He could see through that trouble and see God's purposes in the middle of his trouble. Was God in Israel's trouble when Saul came to power? Was was Saul's reign outside of God's hands somehow? Well, that's not what the Bible says. I mean, the people elected Saul, but the Bible also says God gave them Saul. God gave Israel Saul as king. Why would God give the nation a horrible king like that? He did. To work out his purposes. How about Job's trouble? We've already talked about Job a little bit. Was God in Job's trouble? Imagine the mind of Satan. I see your servant and I hate him. And so he walks up to God and says, I want him. I want to kill his family. I want to take his, his, his job, his work, everything from him. I want to see him deny you. And you know what God does? God opens the door. God allows the trouble in Job's life. Of course, he knows Job will be faithful. But God is right in the middle of all of that, orchestrating it, allowing it. Even the fact that he says, you can do all of that, but don't, don't, you can't take his life. God sets the boundaries, and so he can't take his life. How about Peter's denial of Jesus? You know, Jesus told Peter that he would deny him three times. He knows it's going to happen. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't help Peter through that. Look, I know you're, you know you're going to deny me, but here's some tips. So, so you don't do that. I'm going to help, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm sovereign, so I'll, I'll make it so it'll be easy on you. He doesn't do that. Peter says, I will never deny you. I'll stand up for you. And, and Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And he, he lets it happen. Why? 
So Peter could sit on the beach, no doubt with tears full, tear-filled eyes, and look into his Savior's face and three times say what? You know I love you. Do you think Peter would ever be the same? And in that same context, what does Jesus talk to Peter about? His death. That he would be a martyr for Jesus. And then you go to the book of Acts, and who's the, who's the greatest servant of God? Who does Peter ever deny him again? No way. God, Jesus, allowed that suffering to come into Peter's life and then redeemed him, gave him another chance, and he would never be the same. Without that denial, Peter would never be the man he was. God allowed the trouble to come into his life. What about our Savior's trouble? Was God in that? I hope you believe that. Certainly was. Acts 2.23, this Jesus, Peter says, delivered up according to the definitive plan, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God was in that. He was in all of the suffering that our Savior experienced, all that trouble. God was in Joseph's trouble. He was in Israel's trouble. He was in Job's trouble. He was in Peter's trouble. He was, in a, he was orchestrating the trouble of our Savior and here, the suffering of the blind man. God was in the very middle of it, allowing it to happen, permitting and we don't think this small, but the days to pass every day. The sun goes up, the sun goes down. The sun goes up and the sun goes down and the man can't see. All those days collecting one upon the other and God was at the very center of it, waiting for this very moment. Now, that being said, John 9 does speak of a specific kind of trouble, right? He's a blind man. We're dealing specifically with blindness. While it's certainly true that illness and disease come as a result of sin, here we're learning, we're seeing that that's not always the case. Illness, disease, disability, sometimes they come on the, in the hands or through the hands of a sovereign God, as they do here. You remember... We talk a lot about Moses, and we should. Moses was the humblest man that ever lived. But do you remember that Moses had a disability? In Exodus 4, it was after the burning bush, and Moses is told to go to Israel and set the people free. In Exodus 4, verse 10, we, we find out, Moses said to Yahweh, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent. Either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow to speak, speech and of tongue. I have a speech impediment. There's something physically wrong with me. I can't do this. I can't go to Pharaoh and talk to him. I can't put my words together right. Whatever this speech impediment was, what does God say to him? Then, the, then Yahweh said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, he says? Yahweh, I'm the one who gave you that. I'm the one who made the man blind. Because I do that. 
Now, therefore, he says, go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. I just, I so wish it would have stopped there. Because as, as, as amazing as Moses was, I think Moses missed out on something. Imagine the story if Moses would have said, okay, I'll go. I'm terrified, but I'll go and I'll trust you. Of course, God, who's so kind, condescends. Moses says, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of Yahweh. God was mad. It was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? Okay, take him. Moses, God accomplishes all the things that he was going to accomplish through Moses. But imagine what they would have been like for, Mo- for Moses if he could have experienced all of that trusting completely on Yahweh. And let me tell you, having Aaron with him sometimes got him into trouble. <laughs> Fascinating. Moses viewed suffering as a negative. I can't do this because I have a speech problem. But God saw it as a positive. I made you that way so I could speak for you and be with you in those moments. I made you blind so I could help you see. Remember Paul's thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Another fascinating example of a similar idea. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, Paul could have took a lot of pride in who he was, his role. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Take it away from me. Don't let this messenger of Satan banter me. Whatever this was, we're not sure. He, he prayed that God would remove it. God had his thumb on Paul, and it hurt. And, God, and Paul is saying, Lord, remove it. It hurts. I don't like it. Take it away. What does God say with his thumb pressed on Paul? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. I'm not going to remove my thumb. It's going to hurt. But I have a plan for you. In the middle of that suffering, I'm going to do something amazing. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast. (laughs) I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Wow. So that my power, I will boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's otherworldly. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul just beat Moses. <laughs> he says, okay. 
what action can we take as a result of this truth? How can we put this on? How can we put it into practice? Well, I think we can start with Paul's words here in First, Second Corinthians 12. He says, I'm content with weaknesses. When we read that word content, I'm not sure how you take that word in the, the English, but that word content is, is uh, it's not very strong. I, 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 I read it and I almost think Paul is saying, well, I'll accept it. Seems soft to me. Okay, I'll put up with it. I'm content. I can deal with this. That's not really what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is, I take pleasure in my weakness. I take pleasure in it. I delight in my hardships. That's what content means in the Greek. I am, we might say, well content with my calamity. That's what Paul is saying. So the first action is to recalibrate your thinking about your suffering. We have to do that. God wants us, excuse me, suffering is not happening to you. Suffering is not happening to you. Suffering is happening for you. That's the truth. God is a master craftsman who uses the tools of illness and disease and disability. I know that's hard because it's real. He uses those tools to shape you into a vessel of his mercy. When we embrace contentment, then we can do a second thing. We can move into communication. God wants us to speak to each other about our suffering. He does. He wants us to share our sufferings with each other and to share to talk about what, what God is doing in the middle of those things. He wants us to do that. Second Corinthians, I know I'm in this book right now, but we're not preaching on this, but I am. Uh, Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, what does Paul say here? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, he says, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God. God wants us to recalibrate our understanding of suffering, to see that God is in the middle of our suffering and in the middle of our trouble, recognize that, and then tell others about it. What is God doing in your life through that suffering? And then the comfort that we receive from God, we then share to others. That's a one another. Comfort one another with these words, he says. Is it possible that God has allowed floodwaters, withering, withering crops, or darkness at high noon to equip you to become a counselor or a physician for another person? I think it's very likely. I think it's the reason, one of the main reasons why you're suffering. So you can see what God is doing in your life through that and then tell others about it. But you have to recalibrate and put God in that suffering. And then you have to read and pray and plead like Paul did. How can I delight in this? And it doesn't end as a process. Maybe you've heard Robert Hamilton Browning's poem, I Walked a Mile with Pleasure, she chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and never a word she said. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow 
walk with me. As we recalibrate our experience of suffering away from anger, from shame, and disappointment, we turn away from those things and we turn toward contentment. We become tools in the hands of the master craftsman to help others. This is our first reflection, the purpose of the light. Returning to John here, we have a second reflection. It's in verses 6 and 7, and this is the actual healing here that happens, and we're going to call this second reflection the power of the light. So we have the purpose of the light, and here we have the power of the light. Verse 6, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Here's the miracle. I know what you're asking or what you're thinking probably. Why the saliva? Why the mud? Why does he do it this way? To which I don't really have an answer for. But we could speculate a little bit. I could tell you in Mark 7, verse 34, Jesus uses spit to heal a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. So this isn't the only time that Jesus does something like this. In Mark 8, verse 23, Jesus healed a blind man by spitting in his eyes. This seems a little bit better than having spit, someone spit in your face, but that's what Jesus does to heal a man who is blind in Mark 8. What makes this sign different is that Jesus actually makes mud with the spit and then presses it into the man's eyes. And so in that sense, it is a unique miracle. It's the only time that we're recorded that Jesus did something quite like this. I could tell you that some of the early church fathers interpreted Jesus' actions here in light of Genesis 2-7. Genesis 2-7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You could see the connection there. God created man from the dust of the earth, and so kind of an allusion to that, Jesus spits on the ground, creates mud or dust, and he puts it in the man's eyes. And so he's creating new eyes, in a sense. The early church fathers took that interpretation. Calvin suggested that the mud was designed to intensify the healing, to magnify the cure. This is similar to like what Elijah did on Mount Carmel when he said, you know, pour water on the altar. It's like, make it harder to set fire to because God's going to bring fire from heaven and ignite it. So that's how Calvin saw, explained the mud on the eyes. There is some evidence from antiquity that spit was believed to have healing or curative properties, and so uh, there is an incident recorded where a blind man sought a cure from Emperor Vespasian from his spit, and so I suppose it's possible that Jesus was playing into the thinking of the day by using his spit to demonstrate that I'm the one that has the power. It's my spit. Something we do know is that Jesus wasn't limited by any procedure. He wasn't limited in any way Although this miracle does involve a very unique, even strange action from Jesus, uh, he's certainly not limited by, doing, by using his spit or using mud. There are other places, uh, one in John 4, for example, you recall that Jesus heals a man even from afar. He wasn't even there. He said the man was healed, the boy was healed, and that very moment he was healed. And so Jesus is not limited in any way. My take on this, for what it's worth, is that applying the mud to the man's eyes in doing that, he's, he's making a clear statement that this healing is coming from Jesus. 
It's tangible. The blind man who can't see, he can't see Jesus, obviously. And so to, to have something physical happen, to feel that in his face, it's a way of saying, this, the power is coming from me. You can feel it. That's my take on why he used the spit and put, pressed the clay into the man's eye sockets. There's no doubt, then, that Jesus is, at least in the man's mind, there's no doubt that Jesus is the healer. Having formed the mud and applying it to the man's eyes, Jesus commands him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Siloam is a Hebrew word, and so we have the Greek word sent. He's helping the reader who might not understand what that Hebrew word means help the Greek reader understand. It means sent. If the spit and the mud are obscure, John gives us more clarity with the washing. There's a reason why he tells us that the pool is called sent. He clarifies he doesn't want us to miss that. The fact that John helps the reader understand this makes the meaning clear. John has already made the point multiple times that Jesus was sent from the Father. In fact, if you were to do a word search on the word sent in the Gospel of John, I mean, it is all over the place. Jesus says it over and over and over again that he was sent from the Father. Just in this context, in John chapter 8, we see in verse 16, Jesus says, Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In verse 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Verse 26, this is in chapter 8 I'm reading from, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. Verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. Verse 42 is another verse. This is just in one chapter. He says it over and over again. He makes his point that he was sent from the Father. And this is making that point as well. Go wash in this pool called sent. Jesus was the sent one. The healing of the blind man demonstrates that Jesus is the one sent from God. Again, if we needed further evidence, further proof, Jesus is underscoring again, I was sent from the Father. The healing demonstrates again the power of the light. Verse 7, the end there. So he went, having gone to the pool, he went and washed and came back seeing. I don't know how far the pool was from where the healing occurred, where he met Jesus, but you can imagine what he might have felt like walking towards that pool. I wonder what his heart was doing. Was his heart racing? I wonder if he was a skeptic. Uh, this isn't going to work. I don't know. Did he have confidence that this was it? Am I really going to see? As his feet begin to go down into that pool and you feel the water begin to come up to his knees, as he goes down into the water and he places his head into the water and begins to pull the mud and the dirt out of his eyes for light to come in, to see his reflection for the first time in that water, to look up and to see trees, to see the crowds, to see a blue sky and the sun up above. Wow! Could you imagine? I don't know what he said. What would you say? I can see. Man, would you be running out of that pool? Would you be splashing? 
stomping your way out of there, running to see your family, running to see your neighbors. Amen? It's radical. You can imagine how these things might have transpired. How does this second reflection help us see the difference Jesus makes in our lives? If the purpose of the light teaches us that we're in the sovereign care of a loving God, the power of the light teaches us that we can trust our God, that we can trust our God. If God can heal a man blind from birth, then nothing is too hard for him. Psalm 62, 11, once God has spoken twice, have I heard this, that power belongs to God. If we saw some evidence that God's strength could be hindered or that his attempts could be thwarted, thwarted, well, we would despair. But, Arthur Pink says, seeing that he is clothed with omnipotence, it's a fancy word for power, he is clothed with power, no prayer is too hard for him to answer, no need too great for him to supply, no passion too strong for him to subdue, no temptation too powerful for him to deliver from, no misery too deep for him to relieve. Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Seeing God as powerful made a difference in Jeremiah's life. Remember the prophet Jeremiah? He recognized that nothing was too hard for God. Although the the Chaldeans, Babylonians, were laying siege to the city of Jerusalem, you remember God told Jeremiah to purchase a field. That seems foolish. We read earlier about the foolishness of God, God's foolishness. Buy a field, Jeremiah. What are you talking about? A foreign army's coming in here and they're going to destroy everything. Why would I waste my money on that? Why does God, the omnipotent, powerful God, why does he tell Jeremiah to buy a field when the Chaldeans are coming in? Jeremiah tells us to prove that Israel would return to her land, that fields and vineyards would again be bought in the land. And so Jeremiah declares, nothing is too hard for you. You can even do that. So buy that field. Now what action can we take as a result of this? The second reflection, the power of the light. Something to consider. What have you stopped praying about? Who have you stopped praying for? Where have you given up hope? Have you walked away from challenging relationships, thinking that they can't be sorted out? You don't say it, but really your actions say, God's not big enough for this one. Your prayers have fizzled out. Your hope of reconciliation or whatever it is has fizzled out. What does the healing of the blind man teach you about these things? I think the power of the light calls us to start praying again, to have hope, to not give up on people, no matter how challenging. And it can be challenging. There's a final reflection. We've seen the purpose of the light, the power of the light, and 
in verses 8 through 12, we see the perplexity of the light. The perplexity of the light. Verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying for his part, which I love this, I am the man. It's really me. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. We're not surprised that people were perplexed by this miracle. It is perplexing. People speculate about the man. It's not the blind man. It's got to be somebody else. It's a doppelganger, they think. He looks like the, the blind man. The, they question him about the healing, and he tells them exactly what happened. He, he really deli- delivers the bare facts. He doesn't emphasize anything. He just tells it like it is. Here's what happened. He put the mud in my eyes. He told me to wash. I went and washed. And I walked away, and here I am. I can see. And I don't know where he is. How does the perplexity of the light help us see the difference Jesus makes in our lives? Well, it may say something about the way people receive us. That is, the way they receive God's work in us. The neighbors, of course, were skeptical about the work of God. And it's often the case with unbelievers. They're perplexed. If you're living your faith, then you've experienced this kind of perplexity. Whether unbelievers question you, whether they challenge you, whether they reject you or they write you off, they can't quite understand the light that God has shown in your life. It could be something as simple as giving thanks before a meal, choosing to schedule your life in such a way that leaves Sunday open, giving a portion of your income to to a church, confessing your sin, reading your Bible, reading your Bible in public, serving others in the community, stepping out of that work party a little early, thinking carefully about what you choose to listen to, what you choose to read, what you choose to watch, or your convictions on certain economic, social, or political issues. In the way others question the effects of the light in the blind man's life, people often question the effects of the light in our life. In fact, they should, because the light has an effect, which is my point. And that effect is profound, even perplexing. And this profound and perplexing difference, the only way it can be explained, again, is it with the most striking antithesis the most striking contrast possible. It's the difference between being blind and seeing. That's the difference. We'll see this later as we continue to study this next week, but I like what, as the blind man's kind of figuring things out throughout this text in verse 25, when the Pharisees come to him and ask him, he answered, you know, they're drilling him, grilling him, And he says in verse 25, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. Speaking of Jesus, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. That's the difference it makes. So, 
what does this miracle teach us about coming in contact with Jesus? I think it teaches us a whole lot. What does it teach us about the difference the light makes? It teaches us first, as I've tried to demonstrate, that God has a sovereign purpose. God has a sovereign purpose. And He has sought us, sought us out, and we are in His sovereign care. And God's sovereignty transcends our trouble. The word transcends just simply means to climb over. He climbs over our trouble. Even further, our trouble is often the conduit for accomplishing His purposes. God runs His purposes through the conduit of our trouble, and His sovereign purpose is accomplished because, of course, He is powerful. He has that kind of power, which is the second thing the miracle teaches us. To come into contact with Jesus is to come into contact with power, the greatest power. It's to come into contact as we saw last week, with the Almighty. He used to use this illustration in youth group. If you happen to be changing a tire on the side of the road, you're changing a tire on the side of the road, and you looked up and you saw an 18-wheeler moving over into the soldier and barreling towards you. If you came into contact with that 18-wheeler, would it make a difference in your life? If you happen to be blind from birth and you saw Jesus barreling towards you, what difference would it make in your life? What would be the proof that it made a difference? Well, as far as John 9 is concerned, I mean, we're going to have to wait in the weeks that follow to flesh this out more. But for now, I think we could at least say that people ought to be perplexed, the very least. There ought to be some evidence that we've come into contact with an 18-wheeler. There ought to be or has been someone who can say of you, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? It looks like him, but it doesn't walk like him. Doesn't talk like him. Doesn't act like him. There ought to be or has been someone in your life who can ask, how were your eyes opened? Tell me. At the very least, we, for our answer, ought to be able to say in our own way the bare facts. The man called Jesus made mud. He anointed my eyes. He said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. We should be able to say that. Don't know where Jesus is. But it happened. And I can't deny it. I hope you can see. I hope you come in contact with the light. We know that Jesus was only on the earth for a very short time. His ministry began at about the age of 30. He spent three years, we know, traveling through Israel, doing miracles like this, doing amazing things like this, testifying that he was the sent one, that he, was, that he came from heaven. He claimed to be the unique son of God, and he claimed to be a very unique instrument of God. He was sent by God to take the punishment that we deserve 
And each of us deserve punishment because we've sinned. The most open-handed sin that each of us has committed is to not worship Him because He is our Creator. He deserves our worship. And when we don't, we've broken His rule, so to speak. We haven't paid Him the honor that He is due. The Bible tells us that the, the heavens testify to the greatness and glory of God. So because the, the heavens testify, we're, we're without excuse. Because each of us knows that He is a crea- creator. We know that because we're His creation. It's written upon our hearts. Romans 1.20 says, we, didn't, we don't honor Him as God or give Him thanks. So we're guilty. Even if we do set up some kind of moral system, we prop ourselves up according to some rule or law or standard, we're sorely lacking. Lacking, excuse me. We can't even keep our own moral standards, our own scruples. We can't keep that. We say, do not lie. But what do we do? We lie. We say, I treat people respectfully. But we don't. We gossip. We talk behind their back. We don't forgive. We don't even meet our own moral standard. And we know these things to be true about ourselves if we're honest with ourselves. But Jesus stands before us. He's here. And he's ready to heal. He's ready to make a difference in your life. Jesus made the clay. He, he pressed it into the eyes of the blind man and he told him, go wash. He gave him a command to go do something. Was that washing an act of faith? Is this where God's sovereignty and man's responsibility meet? We've talked about that. I don't know. I don't have the answer for that. All I know is that God, Jesus, pushed that mud into that man's eyes. He went and washed, and he came back seeing. That's my answer. And as a result, did it make a difference in his life? Amen? Joel.